to John chapter 3. We will be looking at chapter 3, verse 22 through 36. John chapter 3, verse 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray that You would use Your Word to strengthen the hearts of my brothers and sisters, to encourage them, to challenge them, convict them if necessary, so that they might find rest for their souls. It is such a comfort to be reminded that you know that we are but dust. We do frequently forget our weakness and our frailty, but you don't. And I pray that you would meet us in our weakness and satisfy us with a greater understanding how wonderful Jesus Christ is. We do ask that He would be lifted up, and not just in our, in our minds, in our words, but that we would see Him 
with the eyes of our heart. Finding ourselves satisfied in Him. And we ask this so that You might be glorified in all things. In Your name, Amen. So this passage is actually the fourth account in a row that depicts Jesus' superiority to Judaistic worship practices that actually pointed to Him. So if you'll recall in chapter 2, we saw how Jesus actually provides new wine that is vastly superior to expectations and renders those stone purification jars obsolete. Secondly, we see that he provides a superior temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And that's, of course, going to provoke his crucifixion later on. But Jesus' point is the temple that I will provide is better than the temple that you have. He also fulfills the promised need of spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit. Because through him, he will cause people, as he explained to Nicodemus, to be born again, that they will be purified through the Holy Spirit. And He gives that. The fourth way that we've seen Jesus' superiority is what we'll look at today. And that's in the fact that His ministry is even greater than that of John the Baptist. Jesus is far superior to John. And which is why John so famously says in verse 30, He must increase and I must decrease. So a brief outline there. We'll look at verse 22 through 26, which is the clash of the two ministries. And then the limited ministry of John. And then John will explain how great is the unlimited ministry of Jesus. So let's look first at the clash of these two ministries in verse 22. This section uh, provides the background for John the Disciple's complaint. And what it tells us at the very beginning is that just after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he goes from there into the country to begin a ministry of baptism, just like John. But of course, John is also continuing his ministry of baptism in a nearby place called Salim. And it tells us that the reason that he goes to Salim is because the water was plentiful there, which at least suggests that there is a lot of water needed for baptism. I'm not going to belabor that point, but I think it's at least significant to notice. Enough water to immerse a person into. But of course, the point of this section is not on how much water is necessary for baptism, but the fact that this conversation between the Jew and John's disciples over purification causes a clash between the two ministries of John and Jesus. So in verse 25, we see that it's, it's this issue of purification that is at the root of the disciples' consternation. But unfortunately, we're not given really much information about the conversation except for the fact that it's about purification and that it upsets John's disciples because people are leaving him because of it. But based upon this limited information, it seems to me 
that it's become clear to the followers of Jesus that the baptism that he's providing is better than the baptism that John provides. Because of purification. Consider the fact that Jesus, as he explained to John, or not John, but Nicodemus, Jesus provides a baptism of purification. The Holy Spirit causes people to be born again. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. But John's baptism is merely a baptism of repentance, a sign that a person just needs to be purified. They want to be purified. And this lines up with the account that we have of Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So if you look at it on the screen or flip there in your Bibles, Paul writes this, or Luke writes this about Paul. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into then what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And as it continues... These disciples then get baptized in the name of Jesus, and at that time, the Holy Spirit comes to them. And the point is, is what, what the reason things work out that way is Paul is demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is given not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, and really anybody who believes and has faith in Jesus. That being baptized in Jesus prompts purification, causes somebody to be born again. Unlike the baptism of John, which is simply a sign that a person wanted to be purified as they prepared for the Messiah to come. So we can see that because Jesus has the power, uh, purifying power of the Holy Spirit, when He's baptizing people, He's not just simply getting them wet. He's cleansing them. So you can see why people would turn from John to follow Him. I mean, think about it. Who, if sincerely convicted of their sin, who would be satisfied with simply a baptism of repentance when a real baptism of purification was available? And if you knew you could actually be forgiven, you could actually be cleansed, who would want to stick with just this desire for repentance? And so that's why these Jews are probably leaving John to follow Christ. And that's probably what this man was explaining to his disciples. But no matter what the content of the discussion actually was, the result of it was that John's disciples came to him concerned about the fact that people are leaving him to go and follow Christ. Now, to be honest, the text doesn't actually say, doesn't directly say that they were concerned. But I think it's implied in the way that John's John uh, responds to them because John highlights his relative insignificance in his limited ministry. John answers and says to them, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. See, John's initial response to this bad news is really telling. His point is, brothers, I would not even have a ministry 
except for the fact that God gave me this ministry and my role is simply to point to Jesus. It's to point to that man that people are following. My role is simply to be, as he said earlier, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that simple statement that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven has significant implications for us as well. Because we know we can't have anything unless God sovereignly directs us to have it. As James says in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So, Ah, uh, there we go. Sorry. So this is true regarding all things, but specifically, notice that John makes this statement regarding ministry in particular. He's talking about his ministry. So John knows that for him to go beyond this calling or this allotment of ministry would be simply a futile attempt at self-aggrandizement. And this fact, of course, is true for us as well. God has given to each of us an allotment of ministry in our lives. These good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in, as Paul says in Ephesians. Paul makes this point also clear at the beginning of his discussion about church ministry in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure or allotment, as some translations have it, of faith that God has assigned. And, and, and Paul's point is this. He's beginning to talk about the ministry and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he uses the same word that he uses in Ephesians about the gifts, and a, a similar word that he uses in, in, in Corinthians. And, and the point is, God gives us grace, an allotment of grace, we call it the spiritual gifts, in order to be faithful to Him. And... He also gives us faith, that that is the confidence in Him that He has given us the power to actually accomplish the purpose that He has given to us. And John the Baptist understood what his allotted ministry was. It was to point people to Christ. And so John is saying to his disciples that he's comfortable with that allotment that he's been given. But more than that, he's trying to make this point to them that his role is not to compete with Jesus, but to point people to Jesus. And that's why he uses this illustration. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. So John brings up this illustration in order to make this simple point. He wants the, his, his disciples to understand how wrong it would be for him to be upset that people are leaving him for Jesus. And to help us understand this point better, I want to read from Alfred Eidersheim, who was an expert of ancient Judaism. And this is what he writes about this custom. He says, in Judea, there were at every marriage two groomsmen or friend of the bridegroom, 
one for the bridegroom and the other for his bride. And before marriage, they acted as a kind of intermediary between the couple. At the wedding, they offered gifts, waited upon the bride and the bridegroom and attended them to the bridal chamber, being also, as it were, the guarantors of the bride's virgin chastity. And we know that it was specially the duty of the friend of the bridegroom to present him to his bride. So the role of the bridegroom was simply to get the, the point the bride to the bridegroom, to, to show her him. And the, and the point really John is trying to, making is, trying to make is the best man should not try to steal the bride. To do so would not just be arrogant, it would be evil. The best man's job is not to attract the wife to himself, but to serve the groom and to serve her in preparing for the wedding. So John is saying, it's not a, it's not a problem to me if people are more attracted to him that they're leaving me. That's my job. And this is what John means when he says, therefore he must increase and I must decrease. But John recognizes that the disciples aren't upset because they finally realize John is not the Christ. That's not why they're upset. Why are they upset? He knows they're concerned because people are leaving him for Christ. Why would that upset them? Because it hurts their ministry. Think about it. If John is insignificant, then they're insignificant. If John decreases, then they're going to decrease. So John is telling them, you have gravely misunderstood my role and my importance. Well, at the same time, he's suggesting to them, you've also gravely misunderstood your role and your importance. And the reality is, this is something we're all prone to do. Probably more often than we think. If we understand that our role is to point people to Christ and not to attract people to ourselves, we would not be discouraged if people are not impressed with us. But we often are. And we wouldn't be discouraged if people didn't appreciate our gifts or when people failed to value us or take notice of our services. Because we recognize we are not what they need. They need Christ. Our job in ministry is to point to Him. That's our job. It's to point to Him. And the word ministry, it's worth spending some time on this, the word ministry just means service. It's a service that's done for Christ. Right? And so we can minister to one another for Christ. We can share the gospel with others for Christ. So any ministry that we do, any service that we do for Christ is a ministry. This, this reminds me of uh, what, what John, the disciple John, said in, in 1 John chapter 1. I'm oh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 17. Look there real quick. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And if you think about that, John's implication, the Apostle John's implication is when you see needs in the body of Christ, you don't need to have an official ministry title to meet that need. If you see a need, you should meet it. 
And the point is, that's a ministry. It's a service. And we should be looking not just for what our official roles and capacities are, but we, we should be looking for any opportunity we can to serve the interests of Christ. So ministry abounds in our life. We all have various ministry allotments. Parenting, right? We're trying to point our kids to Christ, serving them for the sake of Christ. Our jobs, church ministries, our spouses. See, most of us are called to serve in all of these areas, at least some of them. There are allotted ministries. So let me ask, how do you feel about your allotted ministries? See, I'm guessing you're probably not discouraged if you see somebody coming to Christ and growing in these areas. But what if you recognize their growth is because of somebody else's ministry? Like your children, for instance. They notice and they grow because of what the Sunday school teachers are talking about. But maybe they don't listen to a thing that you're saying. Right? They just think, man, they've, they've taught me so much about Jesus and they, they love their Sunday school teachers because of that, but they fail to notice all of how you're investing. As you serve in these areas, are you aiming to prove your worth or to prove their need of you? Or are you trying to help that person simply recognize their need for Christ and His great worth? So I've entitled this sermon, I Am Not the Christ, because it's a, it comes directly from the passage, but it's also a simplified thing that we need to continue to remind ourselves of. We are not the Christ. We need to remember in ministry this fact, because just as John's disciples need to be reminded. And this is such an obvious truth, but as I thought about it this week, I've recognized four ways that I have struggled with this, remembering this very Obvious fact, but it's also how I've seen others struggle with this fact as well. So I just want to look at a few of these ways. I think we struggle to recognize that we are not the Christ. First of all, trying to steal the attention of the bride is trying to be Christ. And so again, it's not as if we actually think that we are Jesus. I don't think anybody here has a true Messiah complex. They actually think they're Jesus. I don't think that's the case. But we still want to compete for one another's attention. The bride. So to use this illustration, maybe in a slightly different vein, we have the bride of Christ, which which is the church. You have Christ, who's the bridegroom, bridegroom, and then you have the, the friend of the bridegroom, which is John. So imagine John is the next-door neighbor of Jesus. He wants to serve the, the groom and his bride. And so he offers to mow the groom's lawn. No problem. He wants to serve the bride and the groom. And he does so. But he, at the same time, he decides, while he's mowing the lawn, he's going to take his shirt off because it's nice and hot. And maybe he might be able to get a glance from the bride. Maybe she might notice that he has some husbandly quality too. Now in that illustration, that sounds sick. But that's what we often try to do too, even in our ministry to one another, that people would notice us 
when our point is to try and point people to Him. True service to the bridegroom would mean pointing people, pointing His bride to Him, that we would not be noticed. And we're probably in danger of this when we feel good because our ministry is affirmed by other people. Not simply because we're faithful. Or when we find fulfillment in our following, not in our faithfulness. I think another way we struggle to do this is we, try, we go beyond our allotment. So this desire to impress others in the church is often, I think, what tempts people to take on more than they should. And this is why John began his response to his disciples saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given him from heaven. See, some people just want to take on more and more, and maybe it's to impress others. Maybe it's because they feel pressure from the church, from their bosses, feel pressure from many different areas. And maybe it's simply because they feel compelled to meet a need. They see these needs around them, and they feel like they're the one that needs to take it all in. If they see it, they've got to devote themselves to it. And so I say, bring this up to say it might not be a bad motivation to want to do more. Because I think we all should be wanting to do more and more that we can for Christ. For instance, maybe there's a pastor who feels led to become a reserve chaplain. The question he's asked himself is, am I being faithful with my current ministry? And if I take on that other ministry, will I still be faithful to that ministry? Or maybe there's a small group leader who feels led to go to seminary. We should start by asking himself first, am I being faithful in leading my small group and in serving my family? Or maybe there's a mother who feels led to work outside the home. You should begin by asking yourself, am I being faithful in my role as a mother? And can I continue to be if I take on this extra ministry? And a good verse for this person who, who often feels compelled to do more, I think, is Romans 12.3. We we read it earlier. But by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Thirdly, assuming that people need you is trying to be Christ. See, often... When we see people struggling or in pain, we feel compelled to say something. We feel compelled to do something for them because we want to fix them. It just, it was some time ago, I was having a conversation with a man who came to me. Uh, he was deeply grieved. He had, he had lost his father recently and he had, um, he had been speaking with his mother and, and she did not have much time left either. And he came to me and he just said, he came to me asking for a book. Is there a book that you can give me to help me? I need help. And I couldn't think of any book. And I just, and really the counsel only, a counsel I give to him is there's nothing that can change this. You're in pain and there's nothing I can do or say to help. It's not exactly the counsel I gave, but even as I was thinking, I, I want to help this man who's deeply grieving. I want to even, is there a verse that I can offer him? And he left, and afterwards, for hours, even days afterwards, I just, I hurt because I wanted to do something. 
But the reality is there was nothing. Even if I was able to point into some sort of resource, it wasn't going to solve the problem for the pain that he was feeling. We hurt because we don't want to see a person we love in pain. It hurts us to see other people hurting. And that's not bad. And that's why we want to fix them. And that motivation isn't bad, but we need to recognize and be okay with the fact we can't fix them. We can't solve their problems. We can't, we can't just remove the pain. People don't need us to save them from their pain. You know, that doesn't mean we can't help. It doesn't mean that we can't be there for them. It doesn't mean we can't serve them or encourage them. But we are ultimately not the answer to people's pain. Jesus is. And when you're trying to be a person's Savior, you're actually robbing them of their joy. And the converse is true as well. Expecting other people to be your Savior is actually robbing you of your joy. Fourthly, assuming that you need to be perfect like the Savior is trying to be Christ. We might call it excellence in ministry. Maybe the symptoms of this kind of Messiah complex, I think, is actually rooted in a desire to be Christ-like. But our pursuit of Christ-likeness can truly be taken a little too far. Because there's a difference in trying to be more like Christ and then actually expecting to be like Christ. Expecting that you actually need to be like Christ in order for you to consider yourself faithful in a ministry. This would be like the preacher who's constantly discouraged because he can't preach like Christ. He stumbles in his words, or he doesn't have the perfect illustration, or he hasn't seen somebody get saved in years. Whereas he looks at Jesus and he had all this ministry. So he considers himself an unfaithful preacher. Yes, part of faithfulness is doing our best. But we are not called to excellence. Maybe we're called to pursue excellence. So when I say that, somebody might say, but wait a second, Joseph, I, what do you do about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you therefore shall be perfect even as your Father is perfect? Isn't he calling us to perfection? And to that I say, well, he's talking about moral perfection there. He's making the point that you can, the only way you're going to escape the wrath of God is if you are morally perfect. And you're not. So you, his point is, point, he was pointing to himself, you need me. You need me. You're not perfect, you need me. And often those who struggle in this way, this is the reason that they actually are held back from taking on more ministry. Because they feel like they can't do more because what they're already doing isn't perfect. And so if they take on something else, they would be unfaithful. And this person needs to be reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he said to me, again I should give the context, this is where Paul had pleaded for God to remove this thorn in the flesh that he had. Because it was hindering him from his ministry. 
And this is, this is God's response to Paul, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, this is Paul again, therefore I will boast all the more gladly with my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We also need to remember that God has given us our allotted ministries. He's given those to us. Right? No man can receive anything unless it's been given him from heaven. Remember also what God said to Moses when Moses complained that he couldn't go to Pharaoh because he had bad speech. God calls him to go to Pharaoh to announce that he needs to let his people go. And Moses says, I can't do that because I'm weak. Do you remember what Paul, or Paul, excuse me. Do you remember what God said to Moses? Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And what's God's point there to Moses? Moses, I know your weakness. I can work through it. I'm giving you this ministry knowing your weakness. I don't expect you to be perfect in order for you to be useful. Again, my power is perfected in weakness. Somebody, somebody might be thinking, well, I would like to do more ministry, and it, but really that my hindrance isn't my weakness, it's my spouse or it's my boss. I can't do more ministry because my kids. But think about again what God is telling Moses. God gives you your allotments. He knows your weakness. Again, your kids are your allotment. He gives them to you. He knows your weakness. He knows it's going to be hard for you to raise those kids. He he gave you your spouse. He knows how difficult it's going to be for you to minister when your spouse has all these needs. He knows that. But He's given you the power that you need to be faithful in those ministries. So, ask yourself these questions. Are you doing something for Christ where the end is to be more thought, high, sorry, thought more highly of by people in the church? Or are you being faithful in your current service to Christ? Or are you always seeking the next ministry? Are you okay with not being able to save somebody in their pain? That is, are you okay with your inability? Or are you hesitant to serve Christ and His church in new ways because of your weaknesses and your imperfections? Well, after talking about the dangers of trying to take on more than we should, it's important to note also what, John, what, what the text says about John's emotional state after hearing this discouraging news, that people are leaving him for Jesus. 
Notice how John responds. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's a fulfilled joy. He's full of joy at hearing this news. See, John's joy was rooted in fulfilling his ministry. That's why he was joyful. He saw his ministry fulfilled. But recognize, even though John's joy was fulfilled, this actually meant significant suffering in John's life. I mean, if we think back on the history of John's ministry, I mean, think about where he was serving. He was out in the middle of the desert. He was wearing camel's hair. He was eating locusts and wild honey. Not a great ministry allotment, I would suggest. Moreover, think about what his ministry was. He would get out in the desert and he'd proclaim with a loud voice, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Sure, some people took heed and repented, but think about how many enemies he also gained. I mean, it wasn't a build-yourself-up, encouraging, you know, warm-hearted ministry. It was very much a confrontation of the Jews' need for repentance. He didn't only confront the religious leaders, though, but political leaders as well. Remember what it says in verse 24. John had not yet been put in prison. As you know, why did John end up in prison? Because he had called Herod, the king, out for his sin of sleeping with his brother's wife, Herodias. And so John ends up in prison. It upsets Herodias that John is calling out their public sin and calling them to repent. So John gets thrown in prison. Sometime later, Herodias' daughter, Salome, dances before Herod. He gets excited, promises her anything. She goes to her mom. She says, what, what should I ask? She says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And then John, of course, is beheaded. That's John's future. That hasn't happened yet. So John says here, my joy is fulfilled. But that didn't mean it's going to be all rainbows and lollipops for John. All downhill from this point. See, his joy was complete even though his future would be full of extremely painful suffering. What does that mean for us? I think it shows us that Joy for the Christian is not tied to a pleasant and secure life. Fulfilled joy does not result in a fulfilled life, as we might define it as Americans. That's not where fulfilled joy comes from. It comes from a fulfilled calling, a fulfilled ministry, being faithful to what God has given you to do. And in doing so, that will bring you joy. So ask yourself right now, What do you think will bring you joy? The promise that the hard days are behind you? The promise that things are just going to get better and better? Maybe if we can just get through this season in life, then we can have joy. Or maybe when we can just get this problem solved, then we can have joy. I mean, that's how we think. But the reality is, you're reading Scripture, and if you just look at how the way the world functions, most likely it's just going to get worse and more painful. Maybe not. How do we have joy when we know the future is probably holds some more suffering? 
faithful. Be faithful to your ministry. Allow God to use you and to work through you and see people come to Christ. When you see people come to Christ and delight in Christ and sing sincerely from their heart about how much they love Him and treasure Him, and when you see them enduring suffering because they're holding fast to their rock, there is no greater joy for a person. You just, to see your kids there someday. To see your fellow believers in your small group there someday. And know that, that maybe you were a part of helping them hold to Christ. And building their faith. That is where true joy is found for the believer. Where John found it in fulfilling his ministry. And we will do so as we see Christ increase and we decrease. This brings us to verse 31. The unlimited ministry of Jesus. This section, verses 31 through 36, is really John the Baptist's explanation for why Jesus is so great. He just he feels compelled to say, okay, yes, he's the Christ, but let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you why I'm excited people are leaving me and going to him. Let me just make it clear to you, disciples. This is, and this is why we want to point other people to Jesus and not ourselves as well. It's really just a stream of truths. John's just letting go and expressing how great Jesus is. Why people would choose to follow Jesus instead of John or any other person. And the bottom line is, it's because he's the Son of God. See, notice all the different ways here why Jesus is greater than you are. First of all, He's sovereign and He controls all things. He's sovereign and He controls all things. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's us. But He who comes from heaven is above all. It means He's sovereign. He controls everything that goes on. We can't control our tongues. And that's why you know, James wrote, James chapter 3, beware of the tongue. It's a dangerous thing. But Jesus controls everything. He also speaks as an eyewitness of heaven. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Now, we have people that will sit and think, they'll get PhDs and trying to imagine what heaven's like. They'll write books about it, in fact. It gets really creative. It's their best guess. Jesus has been there. He, he has seen it all. Guess what? He's not just seen heaven. He's seen Abraham. Remember, before Abraham was, I am. He's seen the beginning of creation. Jesus knows everything that's happened. He's a witness to it all. We've, we need iPhones to find out what's going on in the world. And even then, we can't trust them, right? Everything Jesus says is true. As it says, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. See, it's, it's implying Jesus is God, right? For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Right? The only way we utter the words of God is if we're reading Scripture. Scripture. 
I think it's easy for us just to, to miss how profound that is. Jesus was an actual man standing before them. And when he spoke, it's the same person who spoke and the whole universe came into existence. I mean, there's power in Christ's words. I mean, we can barely get our kids to obey. His words come from the source of all truth. He is the essence of truth. Everything he says is exactly what needs to be said. He is completely without error in any of his statements. Compare, again, this to the fact that James says we need to just, we can't even control our tongues. I can't even venture to think about how much I say that's not true. Even when I'm not intending to be false. Fourthly, he can actually help people. God gives the Spirit to him without measure. I mean, that's the point of what that phrase says. Jesus has been given the Spirit without measure. He has an unlimited ministry. John and all the prophets before him, they would get the Holy Spirit to fulfill a certain task. Even now, if, if the Holy Spirit is not empowering us in our ministry, it's futile. But Jesus had all the power that he needed. Everything Jesus did was infused with power. He has unlimited ministry, unlimited power. There is nothing He can't do. Fifthly, He is sovereign. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Again, nothing is outside of His control. He makes no accidents. Everything that happens, He designs. Why wouldn't a person want to go to Him for help when, even if they have you? Of course they'd want to go for, to Him. He's God. Notice this last point too. He gives eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is If you believe in the Son, you listen to His words and obey Him, your future is secure. He gives eternal life. And again, that's not just talking about the fact that you will never die after you get resurrected. What it's talking about is it's the quality of life. He gives the life, the life that you have been seeking. The fact that you sit here unsatisfied is evidence that you need eternal life. And He offers it. It's there in Him. Life that is meant for eternity with God. The life that you need. The life that you long for. The reason you're unsatisfied is because it can only be found in Him. And He gives it to you. Nobody else can give you that sort of life. Nobody else can fulfill you. Nobody else can save you from your sins. Nobody else can purify you. Only Jesus can. So that's why we would only want to point people to Him as the Savior. Which brings up this question. How do you point people to Jesus? How do we point people to Jesus today? He's not here Physically, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. How do we actually do that today? 
Well, I suggest it's, it's really two th- through two things. His Word and through the church. We learn about Jesus through the Word. We point people to Jesus by pointing them to His life and His teachings. That's why the Bible is called the Word of Christ. And actually why Christ is called the Word. So we point people to Christ by helping them see all that they need for life and godliness is found in the Word of God. And if they meditate on it day and night, they'll be like a tree that's planted next to streams of water. And they will grow fruitful. Secondly, the way we point people to Jesus is by pointing them to the church. Because the church is the body of Christ. It's the physical representation of Christ on this earth. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1.22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. So the church is this physical, physical expression of Christ to the world. And this is why it's so critical for us to be tied to a church. We need one another. The way we get loved by Christ, yes, it's by reading His Word. But practically, Christ works through His church. We get served by Christ by being served by the church. We get loved by Christ by people loving us in the church. That's why the church is called to love. The church is designed to be the physical expression of Christ on the earth. Does it have flaws? Yes. That's why we have His Word Right? To correct us. But it's still His body. And it's through our interactions as a body that we individually grow. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. As he talks about the church, rather speaking the truth in love, and that's how we love each other, that's how we're supposed to speak, we're to grow up in every way unto Him who is the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So take advantage of the church. Point people to the church. Again, not as the Savior, but as a way to be ministered to by the Savior. I think also be honest about your struggles and needs. I mean, how can the church serve you if they don't know how? I mean, again, we're not Jesus. We don't have supernatural insight to know that you're discouraged or that you have financial needs or that you're lonely. We're only going to know that if we hear about it. So to, to not seek help from the church, if you think about it, is, is, is again trying to be like Christ to yourself. And that's the height of foolishness. That's why Proverbs 18.1 says, He who isolates himself is a fool. We need each other. We're not designed to be Christ. We're designed to be members of His body. And we're ministered to by His Word as a body. And yes, I understand the hesitation to want to be needy or to express weakness. I understand that because we know we've probably all experienced it, the church is going to fail you. Your pastors are going to fail you. Your elders are going to fail you. Your, your small group is going to fail you. It will. But again, remember, the church is not 
Christ. Don't expect it to be Christ. It's meant, yes, to serve a function, and I think the more we learn to love each other and minister to one another and recognize that each individual member is not Christ, they're just part of the body, we can be more patient with one another, recognize other people have weaknesses just like we do. As we recognize that, and we we see the value and the beauty of the body of Christ, we're going to want to point people to Christ. And the church will actually start to function as it's designed. And as the church functions according to its design, it's going to be like a city set on a hill. People are going to see it. They're going to know us by our love. People are going to recognize, as they have throughout history, true faith. Because these people love each other. And Christ works through them. Because that's how Christ expresses Himself in the body, right? It's through our love to one another. So utilize the church. Utilize the Word of God. And recognize, we are not the Christ. He is. Jesus, we thank You that You are the Messiah, the Christ, the One sent from God. Because we would be lost in our sin if it was not for You coming to take the price for us. And we want... We believe Your testimony and we want to obey Your testimony because we know that You offer us eternal life. And so Lord, help us to function according to Your design. We want to see people come to You. We want to see people delight in You and rejoice in You and find their satisfaction in You. And God, we need to find our satisfaction in You. And so I pray that You would continue to give us guidance as individuals to know how we can be more faithful to the ministries that You've appointed us to, and even as a church. Because we don't want to just go through the motions. We don't want to just be another institution in Hillsboro. We want to function according to Your design and in Your power so that You would be seen and savored and delighted in and that You would increase and that we would decrease. We ask these things in your name.